One thing that we do know is that historically women have been excluded from really fully participating in cities, indeed building cities. We know that they haven't participated in that. And so our job is to really think about what that nexus, what that intersection is. That's Associate Professor Nicole Carms from the Department of Design at Monash University. I think that there's something about working a little bit more, especially with some of the stories of young women and really discovering their experiences, which are not the same as mine and they're not the same as anybody else's either. Nicole's the founding director of the XYX Lab, a research group looking at the intersection of space, gender and communication. And today we're talking about a project called Urban Exposure, interactively mapping the systems of sexual violence in cities. They're using digital storytelling to help communicate their research. There were three stories that we've documented and really it's an approach that we've taken to really wanting to surface women and girls' experiences. So the the stories of Kira, Jessica and Nawal Jess talks about train spaces. I was walking home from my local shops and a car stopped to let me cross the road. I kept on walking, but then I noticed that the car had doubled back and was following me. There were probably about four or so guys in there and they wound down the window and started yelling at me. Like, hey, sexy, hey, sexy, nice legs. I walked home a different way, even though it took double the time, because I didn't want them to know where I lived. When I got home, I threw out that outfit. I never wanted to wear it again. Kira talks about just being on the street. This was one of my first times out clubbing. My friends and I were on a train and I was with a girl and we were being pretty affectionate. Out of nowhere, a man took a couple of steps towards us and started yelling really angrily, aggressively, really aggressively, looking for a confrontation. I didn't know what to think and in that moment I was really aware that he was targeting us because we were all gay and because I was a woman with another woman. And it just made me feel terrified and hopeless because I had assumed that I would be safe out in public with my friends. But clearly I'm not. And Nawal is talking about nightlife. I hadn't been out in ages. And I was really excited to have an hour out with my girls. Towards the end of the night, a guy had groped one of my friends. When she'd pushed him away in disgust, he punched her. He punched her in the face. I remember he was really tall, and so were all his friends. It escalated and two of my friends were hit. Those boys, they just laughed it off. And we used those stories as points of departure for redesigning city spaces. 
and then we redesigned those spaces so that they would be safer for women. Welcome to City Road. I'm Dallas Rogers, and we're talking to Nicole Carms about gender and the city. Nicole and her XYX Lab team are thinking about how we can collect and report urban data in new ways. Their free-to-be urban design thinking workshop allows women from all walks of life to redesign the city in ways that will have real-world impacts for women and girls. A little later in the show, we'll talk about the hypersexualization of our cities. The idea that the hypersexualized images that are put on display in our cities have an effect on how women and men act and experience the city. But first, Nicole has a lot to say about the old subjective-objective data research tension. What's striking about those videos and those stories and those voices is that the women are telling them themselves. Mm. It's a very powerful way of communicating research. Mm. How important is the subjective dimension of your whole research project? It's incredibly important for precisely the reason that you're noting to actually surface individual stories of women, which is what free to be does. And it's indeed a method that we're using in the XYX lab to help people empathise with these stories. And I think that's what happened for you is you're like, okay, I'm being presented with an experience of the city, which is not one that I have ever had, but also it's it's clearly something about being a young woman that is kind of um, inherent in those stories. So the storytelling is very important. But what I've also realised is that because we talk about very subjective things, two things happen. People think, therefore, it's all very subjective and therefore it's not research and it's not kind of real. So um, one of the things that we need to do as researchers in the XYX Lab is to talk about how stories actually accumulate to become data. So this is a kind of interesting conundrum. But the other thing that happens is that when I do radio or talk about the projects, people want to ask me about my own experiences. So there's there's a kind of tension about people wanting to know, well, how did I kind of arrive at wanting to do this research, etc. And so um, the lab is objectively surfacing these stories, but it's very, very personal. How do you take these subjective stories and turn them into an objective practice where you are redesigning the city? So we do that in a couple of ways. One is to transform thousands of stories. So the free to be map um, that we did with Plan International surfaced 20,000 stories from women and girls internationally. So that in itself is a data set. So we uh, we code all of that data. So we look for typologies of spaces. We look for the kinds of experiences, that the absolute nuances of the sexual harassment, and we code for all those things. And so we're able to actually generate a data set. But then when we're doing the workshop work, which is where we bring young women into a room with stakeholders, so people that might be experts at designing city spaces or public transport spaces, then we really draw on those subjective experiences a lot. And that's a very one-to-one thing where we say, here is Nikki's experience of the city, and this is what happened for her in this particular moment. What could we do in this space, in this time, with the kind of Um, sometimes with the very real resources that we have, but sometimes we like to be totally speculative. If we had no obstacles, what would we do? Um, Then we kind of really use those personal stories to very deliberately design gender-sensitive responses. 
A gender-sensitive urban design process takes the political, cultural and economic factors that produce gender-based exclusion and discrimination into account when we're designing our cities. And Nicole and her team are using digital methodologies and citizen research methods to collect and analyse their data. So Free2B is a crowdsourced map. So crowdsourcing is really useful for this kind of research because it allows you to input information in an anonymous way. Uh, and when women have been um, maybe carrying some experiences of sexual harassment or sexual violence, then this is a, a great forum and it allows us to get a lot of data. Um, crowdsourcing uh, is essentially about a geolocative pin, so it can show us very detailed aspects of the city. And I guess in terms of the methodology, it's it's open, so people self-select into it. Um, we're not going out there and asking people to participate, so it's it's quite choiceful. Um, we're able to gather large numbers of information um, about cities and spaces, and then we um, are looking specifically at uh, incidents of sexual harassment and assault, and we're looking at a very particular kind of demographic. So in the case of Free to Be, we were looking at women under 30 or people that identified as women under 30, um, and the map was done across C Sydney, Kampala, Lima, Madrid, and Delhi. So they were across five cities in 2018. So there's a map and people log on and they drop a pin in a place and then they can type in a little story about their experience in that place. Yep. So it's a geolocative map. You um, you don't need to log in. You can anonymously place information. Um, you, you drop a pin and that pin has a series of survey questions attached to it around your experience, your age, your gender, um, what happened, what you did after it happened. But you are also allowed to insert free text and that's where we gather the stories that we're able to um, also code for as well. Can you talk me through some statistics about women's experience is maybe in Sydney from your data sets? So in Sydney, we know that 60% of unsafe experiences are happening on the street. Women's experiences of cities are are very challenged by having unsafe experiences on the street. So you can imagine that when you're moving to school or to work or anywhere, if you feel unsafe moving through the city, then you are, you're, you're, you're modifying your behaviour all the time. And so 60% of unsafe experiences are on streets and therefore that's, that's quite a um, challenging experience for young women. We also know that um, around 20% of unsafe experiences are happening in parks, but also on public transport spaces uh, and women are, when women are going to and from work. So it's a lot of the, their experiences of cities. Verbal harassment was the largest group um, of harassing behaviour, and this included anything from catcalling to threats of assault. Um, catcalling was the highest category, and verbal threats were um, often um, something that women were experiencing, especially when they were rejecting men's um, advances or comments. And so um, this is kind of quite a problematic thing for women. The next type of harassment that we identified was nonverbal harassment. And so this can be anything from leering to full-on physical intimidation, but it doesn't involve any kind of physical contact. But the thing about um, nonverbal harassment is that it's, it's really threatening. So um, if you're being chased or stalked, this can be 
incredibly unsettling, especially for young women. We did also code for sexual assault, so any form of physical contact ranging from groping um, through to rape. And this is an interesting kind of area because some young women wouldn't identify groping as sexual assault because it's so incredibly normalised, but nonetheless it, it is a form of sexual assault. So these were the kind of categories that we were coding for. You're listening to City Road on 2SER 107.3 FM in Sydney, on the web at cityroadpod.org and around the world at City Road Podcast. We're talking to Nicole Carms from Monash University about her work on mapping sexual violence in our cities. And coming up next, we talk about how gender mainstreaming and gender-sensitive urban design can change our cities for the better. And what does that mean for redesigning our cities? I guess what we're, based on what you were saying before, if men design cities and men have no or little knowledge of these experiences, they might be designing spaces that are problematic for women. How do we redesign the city in that sense? Well, we know that because um, Vienna has had 20 years of gender mainstreaming in their city planning policies, we know that there are a couple of really basic things that make a difference. So gender mainstreaming or um, gender sensitive design is, well, gender mainstreaming is when you actually give 50% or, or you divide the resources amongst the people. So in in the case of gender mainstreaming, that would mean that you're thinking about how you would divide the city 50% towards women, 50% towards men, or indeed I would say how we divide the city between diversely gendered people because, of course, this idea of male and female and there are lots of different ones that we need to be designing for. So we just kind of think about distributing those things more evenly. But it also um, relates to money spent as well. And if you think about how the city would be different if we allocated the appropriate amount of money to making it um, accessible for people, that would be quite a significant change to cities. So this idea of mainstreaming is very important. So the question was, how would the city be different if we were kind of thinking about these things? And I was saying that in Vienna, they have been for 20 years. So they've been able to see the results of what gender mainstreaming has done for that city. Very simple things like accessibility, making sure that whether you're in a wheelchair, using a pram or a walking stick that you can get anywhere in the city actually changes women's experiences entirely of the city. Um, And I think, um, not that these things mean much, but Vienna did just overtake Melbourne as the world's most livable city. So it's number one on the list. So accessibility, lighting, cleanliness, um, these are things that really significantly affect women's experiences of cities. Um, A lot of the comments on Free to Be that were about that really kind of pertain to space were about lighting. But of course, it's not just any, it's not just kind of bright lights. It needs to be a very specific kind of lighting and it needs to, um, you know, be well crafted so that it doesn't look like a horror film or a shooting gallery, but it, it, there are very particular qualities. Um, it, it needs to be defined, but it, it's different in open spaces as opposed to closed spaces. So these things are quite significant. But I think that all of these gender-sensitive ideas need to be co-designed with women. We need to really bring them into the room to understand the kinds of consequences. And I'm both a woman and an architect, but I'm still surprised by the kinds of things that young women in particular want to see in cities. It seems to me that there are two components to this. There is the built form 
and the built form will shape the way that people interact with the city. And then there is sort of a more there's a psychological component of the population itself. And it seems to me we need to change our ideas about the city and our ideas about our men's relationship to women. How do those two things go together? Interestingly, um, of course, people immediately want to know, well, what kinds of things would, would I design or should we design for cities? And I think we have to remember that the city is not something that we can just kind of demolish and begin again on. It's it's about rethinking spaces that already exist. Um, it's about modifying spaces that may be uh, tricky or indeed um, hotbeds where sexual harassment occurs. But it's we're always working within a particular context. So I think that that it's a it's both. It has to be applied to the the environments that we're living in. But you're right in the sense that there's something about this this connection between behaviours and spaces um, and um, I I think it's also about communication as well, like really being clear about what what we are as a city in a way. One of the most successful things that um, I've seen around sexual harassment is really, it's just a simple communication campaign. So in the UK, they actually on the public transport spaces just said, this is actually what sexual harassment is. Often young women actually don't know that the stuff that they're experiencing is illegal. So, um, and also I think by displaying some of these things in public transport spaces in particular, you set up a kind of contract. So people also then know what to do if they're a bystander because they understand the behaviour is unacceptable. Um, And women know how to kind of call it out and people also kind of realise that it's not acceptable. But all of these things are happening in an urban space of the city. So they're kind of spatial as well. Um, And I guess that What's also spatial is this: uh, the current mechanisms we use to deal with with violence and even violence against women are all these cameras and safety buttons and spaces we're supposed to stand and things we're not supposed to do. And they're they're all about making women manage their interaction with the city, which is of course not something that we would agree with. But also, it's about um, documenting things after they've all gone wrong. So we really want to kind of think about how can we be in front of these things and not just you know, searching for the video evidence for a law court or something. So there, there is these slippages between how we communicate with each other, what the space does, what the behaviours are doing, um, what architecture has the capacity to change, um, the inflections of both behaviour and architecture. These are all important things and they're not, they can't be separated. Another part of your talk, and I think this is a central part of your book, is that the idea that the city becomes a stage upon which hypersexualized performances are staged. So we have images of what might be like soft porn uh, scripts. I think you use the idea of that and they infiltrate the city. And I think part of your argument is you're drawing connection between these hypersexualized images in urban space and hypersexualized experiences and even violence against women and that there's a connection between those. Could you unpack that for us? Yes. Um, for a while, I kind of thought that maybe I was just like writing books and no one really cared. But th- when we talk about these things with young women, they actually reinforce that it does affect their experiences of city spaces. So the idea or the premise is is essentially that there's lots of representations of women in cities that tend towards being hypersexualized and that can be anything from a kind of softcore passive representation of a of a of a woman um, that's very sexualized all the way through to these highly pornographic images that kind of reference as you say the scripts of pornography 
most kind of perfume ads or jeans ad or fashion advertising, um, these these are all kind of have highly sexualized women um, in quite provocative positions. And I think we all know that those provocations are lifted from those kind of sexual scripts, which we might be able to see in pornography and um, as such. So those are circulating our city environments in retail districts everywhere. They're incredibly normalised. And my position is, is that when we are constantly seeing women and the, these images are dominated by women, then we would expect that there's something about women that we can assume through those gender stereotypes. And indeed, what um, one of the examples that I would give when I'm talking about this with young women is um, is the idea, I don't know if you have it here in Sydney, but in Melbourne, our bus shelters are sponsored by advertising companies. So if you're a young woman and you're waiting for a bus or a taxi and you're standing in an infrastructure that's sponsored by AdShell, you are likely to be standing next to, and we've been documenting them, a hypersexualized woman image of a woman. And so there's this, what I would describe as a triangulation that occurs. I'm waiting for a bus. There's a man in a car um, or a group of men in a car, and we know that that, that um, groups of men in cars are sexually harassing women and we've got the statistics to prove it. And there's some kind of relationship that unfolds. And... And I think that women are actually speaking out about how that nexus and that triangulation starts to impact on their experiences of spaces. So there's, there's something to uncover around, around those images and the impact that they're having on women and indeed on men. What are some of those challenges? I imagine on ones because there's a lot of complex, I, I guess, like uh, cultural studies kind of landscape to navigate here I guess some people could call you a prude other people could say these images are liberating I mean your argument makes intuitive sense to me how do you navigate that tricky ground that sits in the middle of this well space? in in the book I've I've drawn on sources from cultural theory from feminist theory um, from people that write about advertising and the impact that it has on on us and you're right um, some theorists would argue that advertising is so ubiquitous in city spaces that indeed it has no impact on us at all. And, um, of course, that's one kind of argument. I have kind of um, firmly staked out a territory with other cultural theorists who indeed say that that no matter how kind of passively we are absorbing these images, we still are. Um, And it would be impossible to um, reject the ideas that they don't construct some kind of identity for us by seeing these images in in fashion and retail and um, urban environments. They, they, They have to have an impact. And indeed, we know that they do because we're constantly reshaping our identities. Women are constantly changing their identities in relation to fashion or um, sexual culture. Um, and, and this is a way that we become who we are. So we need to pay attention to these highly gendered images and the very specific expectations that they have of women. And of course, the the issue that I have, and it's a really important point, is that it's not about anti-sex or being prudish. It's about a very limited representation of women and these are the only ones that we're allowed to buy into so if it was more diversely gendered and if there were more images of whether it's hypersexualized men or indeed um, gender diverse people then I think that there would be living in a, in a slightly different landscape but the fact is we're not tell me about the kind of heteronormative aspect of this well that's the fundamental problem they are only images of what appear to be heterosexual women performing for heterosexual men. So um, one of the arguments that I make in the book is that pornography and these images are dominated by a very heterosexist um, 
uh, ideal and that that's something that we need to be cautious about because it's actually then excluding a whole range of other people from really participating fully in cities. If you only present one kind of image of a highly sexualized, generally white, generally young woman, well then, you know, lots of people aren't in that category. Cole, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. You're listening to City Road, 107.3 FM in Sydney, on the web at cityroadpod.org and around the world at City Road Podcast. I'm Dallas Rogers. See you next time.